Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. The power of the haiku format and what makes the form of that particular kind of poetry compatible with Zen Buddhism is the click of the switch that we experience when a haiku idea or concept or image just fits perfectly, just snap. So it was with the poet Kobayashi uh, Isa, who lived from 1763 to 1828. And I can't help uh, sharing several different haiku. They're short. Uh, for example, some other ones. Even with insects, some can sing, some can't, he says. All the time I pray to Buddha, I keep on killing mosquitoes. On a branch floating down river, a cricket singing. And one of my favorites, which is poor fly, he wrings his hands, he wrings his feet. <laughs> you, you see how those kind of click, right? But the poem of Isis that I want to consider closely today is this one. Where there are humans, we will find flies and Buddhas. Which I think is kind of profound. Just as Issa's poem about a fly wringing his hands and feet or a cricket singing as it swept towards some kind of probable death, Issa's poem about Buddhas and flies, I think, pretty well sums up the human condition. We're very happy to be Buddhas, uh, but we would rather not think about the flies. We would rather eradicate those pests, but as Issa points out, the connection is inevitable. Where there are humans, there will be both Buddhas and flies. Our theme for the merry month of May, welcome to it, is Nurturing Beauty. And I'm calling my talk today, Seedbeds and Worms, Buddhas and Flies. And I want to think about planting seeds, both actual seeds, of course, and metaphorical seeds, and about the earth that we do that in. And I also want to think about the tensions Kobayashi Isa considers in that very short poem, where there are humans, you'll find flies and Buddhas. Well, it's spring, of course, even though eh, it's a little hard to tell looking out the window here in Minnesota. We have, as is our custom here at FUS, celebrated our spring equinox, and yes, your volunteers are gearing up for a summer solstice celebration because it will come despite appearances. The seasons pass as we watch our earth turn and we are reminded of the cycle of life and death and rebirth. For me, as an old farmer, the spring brings to mind cultivation and planting, but also the fact of the 
reckoning we must face for the bad seeds that we planted. Yeah, farming always feels a little bit biblical, as I have mentioned before. And of course, then we're also throwing those seeds out there into the weather, whatever that is going to be doing. I've mentioned before the inscriptions at the ancient temple of Apollo at Delphi. As the sacred center of Greek society, as well as the important sacred site that was one of the main sites all around the Mediterranean of the B.C. days, and I've mentioned what those three top inscriptions were. Know thyself, nothing in excess, and certainty brings insanity. Those were the top three. Now, I want to balance these ideas off one of my favorite poems, that one by the Scottish poet Robert Burns. And again, I'm reminded of that poem this time of year, even though Burns actually wrote uh, the poem about fall planting, not spring planting. The, uh, the subtitle is On Turning Her Up in Her Nest with a Plow, November 1785. But to remind you, uh, first verse goes like this. I'm sorry, truly sorry, man's dominion has broken nature's social union and justifies that ill opinion which makes thee startle at me, thy poor earth-born companion and fellow mortal. A little later he says, but mousy, thou art no thy lane, improving foresight may be vain, the best laid schemes of mice and men gang off to glay, and leave us naught but grief and pain for promised joy. Well, now he ends the poem this way, and forward though I cannot see, I guess in fear. I often think of this poem this time of year because plowing muddy spring fields is not an easy thing to do. In Robert Burns' day, it was horses pulling the plow. In my day, it was a tractor. But a farmer plowing with horses could stop and apologize to the various animals it meets along the way while it's plowing. But on, in machine agriculture, no, you can't do that. You just keep going. Which is, I think, a very good metaphor for the ecologically tragic times we live in, as a matter of fact. I always hated looking back and seeing the mice, rabbits, birds, and snakes that were living their very normal days until that noisy tractor came along and chopped them and or their nests to pieces. Despite the difference in equipment, I always thought something along those lines that Burns wrote long ago. I'm truly sorry man's dominion has broken nature's social union and the timeless grappling with our shared reality that then he says, the best laid schemes of mice and men gang off a glay and lay us naught but grief and pain for promised joy. Well, there's hope for you, unfortunately, too often in our human experience. Burns thinks that the human lot is worse, however, because not only do we suffer what is happening right now, but we can imagine other scenarios, and that gets us all kinds of worried. Still, thou art blessed compared with me. The present only touches thee, but oh, I backward cast my e on prospects, prospects drear. So, yeah, I regret a lot back there, and forward though I cannot see, I guess, and fear. Our imaginations are wondrous, but also 
They're very dangerous, and Burns knew that very well. Forward, though I cannot see, I guess, in fear. Who hasn't been doing a whole bunch of that back and forth thing uh, in future time travel and past time travel in our recent months? I mean, we do have a few things to worry about. After all, the economy and uh, the U.S. political dysfunction, the war in Ukraine, the world economy due to the war in Ukraine and the destruction of food for the planet due to the war in Ukraine. And as all, we all know, the list goes on from global disturbances to personal ones. One reason that I've spent much of my life writing poetry is just the kind of experience that one has reading those kinds of, of uh, uh, haiku and also a Burns kind of poem, facing up to the human situation. I have always thought that poetry can say the unsayable, or if it can't exactly do that, then poetry can give us some kind of temporary closure to what cannot be said. And often we can't even think it sometimes. Take that image of the grasshopper, for example. Think about it for just a moment. We see that grasshopper in Issa's poem singing away on his broken branch floating on down the river. We see it. And we know that the image is true, quote-unquote, right? Even if we don't know what true exactly would mean in that particular case of a branch floating down a river and a singing grasshopper on it. On a branch floating down river, a cricket singing. It's a moving kind of image, isn't it? Poetry catches one of the ways the human mind works following those kinds of images, I think. For example, I can take the word God and use it in a poem or a song. Even atheists have an image of God, that quote unquote again in their minds. I would argue that anyway, some kind of an image, willingly or not. The image is most likely something out of a one-panel cartoon, though, unfortunately, isn't it? About some kind of a guy with a beard and a bathrobe. The image arises naturally to us. It's just in the water of our culture. We see the cartoons. We pick up all of those images from the zeitgeist. In that case, the word God becomes a symbol and then an image, and then we forget what this image and the symbol are all about, and therefore we often get confused. As a matter of fact, the ease with which most of us can call up some kind of an image of God has been used as an argument for the existence of God. We couldn't think, so that old argument goes, of God so readily if some reality of the symbol did not exist. It's a very old argument. Now, one hole in that argument is that it's an idea from a European Middle Ages standpoint when you didn't get a whole lot of choice about what you thought of God. I mean, you did, but they would burn you at the stake if you made the wrong choice, right? It's looking back at a time of Christian hegemony. This is what God is. The idea of God, and hence the image and symbol of God, are culturally conditioned. 
The medieval Christian God symbol is not the same as uh, one you might have today. Again, that one-panel cartoon sort of thing. Or certainly not the same kind of image that a contemporary Hindu or Muslim or Buddhist would have in mind. But, you know, you could say, wait a minute, um, the ubiquity of the many symbols of gods across many human cultures, maybe that's a proof that there is something actually out there. And that, that argument is a little bit newer and a little bit more difficult to refute. But, you know, we love to argue about such things, don't we? You get the point about all of this. You do not need ever to have seen a singing cricket or God on a branch floating down river to be able to imagine, right, imagine, right, make it an image in your mind. And further, there's no need for any grasshopper ever to have sang on a branch floating downstream for that image to be true, right? I've never seen anything like that, but I know immediately, click, what it means to see that in my mind. The sort of images and creations and breakdowns of human language and symbol that we can look at in these cases, they're endemic to language, and they're why a lot of philosophers say, you know what? Language can never get at reality, which is a debatable point. And I've spent a lot of my life thinking about it from a Wittgensteinian idea. And guess what? There's no bottom to, the, to that kind of thinking. That's why humanism is not an answer. And I always argue this point. We are not trying to be an answer. We are trying to be in dialogue. We aren't trying to solve all the language puzzles and philosophical conundrums in the world. We are inviting others to come in and talk with us. Let us have a real dialogue about these things that are subtle and mysterious and dangerous and difficult. And let's actually talk instead of you know, trying to lure someone into our little lair so we can pontificate about it. We know that interpretations of facts change over time. That's simply a fact of the matter. Therefore, truth changes over time, necessarily. We know that. Every idea, every truth has some sort of genealogy, some sort of family tree. It has nuances within its meaning when we start looking at it. Now, this is not a reason for alarm, as far as I'm concerned. If you're a person who's... Uh, Fine living with mystery and ambiguity. Hey, it's kind of a good time not to know anything. That's exactly what Socrates said. And, you know, look where it got him. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't do that, right? But let's go back to those inscriptions over the, uh, the uh, temple at, of Apollo at Delphi. And I, I mentioned them earlier. It's that Nothi Sweeton uh, is the Greek. Know thyself. It's number one. Meden Agon, nothing in excess, mean, mean, right? And Angia Paradate, a little more complicated, but certainty brings insanity. So, know thyself, yeah, Socrates, Plato, etc., they went to town on that particular one, didn't they? But then that nothing to excess, who really wants to hear that one? You know, I, I learned it, I think, in fifth grade when they were teaching personal grooming, you know, how you have to brush your teeth, uh, nothing in excess. 
I, we don't want to hear it, but, you know, if, if you don't listen, it does come back and bite you, doesn't it? I speculate that those two bits of wisdom are very popular with us, and I bet you, five bucks, they're in every uh, self-help book ever written, right? Know yourself and st stop being excessive, yeah. But then there's that third saying that we don't hear about, certainty brings insanity. Uh, that may be the most true one of the three and the most difficult to pursue. It's telling that certainty brings insanity is not part of our cultural code. It's not something that Europeans and European colonies have ever wanted to hear, is it? Certainty brings insanity. Insanity is like, oh, mm, war and theocracy, right? Racism, sexism, homophobia, I mean, the list goes on. What isn't driven by certainty that isn't bad? I guess we have to ask. Certainty brings insanity. And that's why we humanists try to stay in ambiguity. It's a whole lot safer for everybody. Certainty brings insanity. It's why democracy had to be invented, isn't it? You can see why the Greeks looking at that temple would say, oh, yeah, we know that certain guy, and we know what he did to all his people, don't we? One tyrant means disasters. He's quite certain, yep, and that's very bad. The certainty of one group over another. Yeah, it's easy to fall into that. Our group is certain. We know the truth. Yes, and then we will set out to oppress, suppress, and hurt others. Bad idea if you're looking to be ethical. Know yourself, nothing to excess, certainty brings insanity. And I think it's smart to remember all three of those. It leads to a humanistic world view. We can embrace wisdom and love because that necessarily gives us the humility to do that. And that's why we are a safe place to share dangerous ideas here in this congregation. A humanist congregation is dedicated to ambiguity, discussion, dialogue, knowing that real love and real wisdom is not certain. That's where insanity begins, and we don't want to go there. This is why FUS-affiliated clergy J. Exodus Hooper insists that humanists must push beyond free thinking, which is a very old term for us, into free forming, a little bit newer jazz term, but you can see the difference between free thinking and free forming. The rusted iron walls of certainty are always about overthinking and underfeeling. They're about self-delusion, they're about destruction through excess, and they're about the insanity brought on by certainty. They're all about thinking and acting in an unchained way so that we don't hurt others. The temple at Delphi was centered around oracles, prophecies, because why? Well, you know what? Yeah. Burns was right. We people always have feared the future. 
As he said, still thou art blessed compared with me. The present only toucheth thee, but oak I backward cast my eye on prospects drear and forward though I cannot see. I have a memory. I time travel to the past and I have fear of the time travel I do to the future. The project of progressive religions, I would argue, never does change. The project is to change that rote, cliched, oppressive, uncomprehending way that we become certain. That is what leads to fear and death. The project of progressive religions is ever more both personal and social personal in helping each of us see our place and our responsibility on this darn earth, and also social because we have to see what we owe to others. My forebears uh, taught me a verse to say when you go out into the field in the springtime. It goes like this, He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. That's one of the Psalms. And yeah, it's the inspiration for bringing in the sheaves, if you know that old uh, conundrum there. Taking seeds out and planting them is always an act of hope. It's very scary to throw seeds out in that world where you don't know what's going to happen next. You just have to have faith and accept the ambiguity of things. I cannot see. Yeah, that can lead to fear. But farmers goeth forth and weepeth because we know those risks, but we do it anyway. And whether you're a farmer or a gardener or it's all just metaphorical for you, be brave because beauty, we know, is ephemeral and all life is ephemeral and we are human. And because we are human, we are both Buddhas and we attract flies. Yeah, we can weep about that, but we can also hope about that as well. The harvest does come. We don't know how much it's going to be, but it comes eventually. As human beings always have, we do what we can, and we call on ourselves and to each other to share and to love and to choose hope over fear. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.